Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Many of you know that um, I'm back from Bolivia. I was in Bolivia for 10 days. I was there, let's see, I left on the 2nd of September and I stayed until the 12th of September for some rest and relaxation. Well, <laughs> I realized that that is something of a joke in A, ministry, and B, my own heart. I don't know how to be quiet. I don't know how to just sit still. So I found myself in Bolivia folding right in to the ministry tempo of the missionaries with whom I was staying, Mike and Marina Shank, many of you know them. And they're active, and they're moving, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and I went right along with them. And I thought, where's my vacation? It's supposed to be a vacation here. I realized that in the course of those 10 days that I had given my testimony 30 times probably. And by the time I was done, because I'm doing it all in Spanish, I had it almost memorized. It was just coming off and, you know, coming right out. But I got to think about some of the pieces, you know, when you're trying to translate something from one language to the next and it's not your, you know, really well, you're not really well or good at it, you have to really think about what it is you're trying to say. And it reminded me at one point about something that God had done in bringing me from plumbing to pastoring. I had decided, along with Elaine, we had prayed about it, that I was going to go into ministry. I was going to quit plumbing. Now, it's common in the plumbing circles and the trades generally that when you are going to quit, you do not give notice. (laughs) You quit. Because if you give notice, they're going to fire you anyway. The point is, is a lot of people want to hold on to their stuff. And people can get sticky fingers. So if you say, I'm going to leave in two weeks, they'll let you go lest you take everything off of the truck and say, oh, that's mine. Does that make sense? Okay. So I was going to do the exact same thing. And I told a very godly friend that I was going to do that. And he said, oh, you shouldn't do that. You should give a notice. The right thing to do is to give a notice. Even if they fire you, if they fire you, that's fine. I said, I I can't afford to live these two weeks without this paycheck. I need this money to survive, especially now that I'm going into ministry, starting school. I need everything that I can get. He said, what do you make? I told him what I made in those two weeks. He said, if they fire you, I'll pay your salary for those two weeks. (laughs) I thought, that's amazing. I can't believe that this person has offered to do it. So I said, okay. I went into my boss, who this was a very, very secular plumbing company. Those of you who have been in the trades know what the trades can be like, okay? And I went in and I said, I need to quit. He said, why? I love you. I'm not paying you enough. You're not doing, no, it's not that. I feel God is calling me into the ministry. I'm going to be a pastor. So I need to give two weeks notice. Well, what well, that's great. I mean, but what are you going to do for money? What are you going to do for, you know, to support yourself? You're going to be poor, you know? How are you going to live? I said, I don't know. I'm just going to trust God. I'm just going to go ahead and do what it is that he's calling me to do. I was convinced I was getting fired that day. 
And boy, am I glad that I listened to my friend. I trusted my friend because he said, my boss, well, don't quit. You don't have to quit. How about you work 20 hours of any time you want to work while in those 20 hours, I'll give you a raise, I'll pay you in cash, and I'll give you some extra things on top of it as well. And I thought, had I not asked and just quit, I never, ever would have gotten these blessings that God intended to give me. I allowed my fear to prevent me from doing really what was the right thing. And God, when he offered those things, went right into my brain and said, told you. I told you that you could trust me. I felt stuck. And sometimes we feel stuck in situations. We know God is calling us to something different. We know that there might be something better or more aligned with his will, but for whatever reason, we are held fast by the bonds of, how am I going to make enough money? What are people going to think? Maybe I'm not qualified to do what God is calling me to do. It seems impossible to extricate ourselves. Maybe God has called us to something big in our lives. We have a burning heart for something, but our spouse is not on the same page. How do we bring it up? How do we talk about these things in a loving, godly way while still being faithful to God's call in our lives? Stated another way, how do we ask people in power for things, recognizing that God is still in control. We need to know this because if we won't, we will not step out in faith. We will resent the people who stand in the way of doing what it is we think we need to do or God is calling us to do. We allow these people who prevent us from doing these things, we give them the keys to our happiness or our future flourishing And they hold the keys of our heart and trust in God as well. So today we're going to talk about Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week, Nehemiah, as Phil was saying, had a broken heart for the city of Jerusalem. And he turned that broken heart into prayer. He knew he was going to need to ask the king. It said indeed that he prayed and wept and fasted for days. But as we're going to see, it's it's bigger even than that. So turn with me to chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan... In the 20th century, or in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, remember, he was the cupbearer, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah says, and then I was very much afraid says that he approaches the king in the month of Nisan. It wasn't just days or even weeks of fasting, weeping, and crying. It was four months. Four months from the moment that Nehemiah finds out what had happened in Jerusalem to the day he's before the king that we're reading about today. It seems quite likely that Nehemiah, based on his, his, his desire and his witness of his prayer life, was planning and praying waiting for the right opportunity to shoot a shot, waiting for the right opportunity to make the big ask of the person who held power. In fact, what it would seem, at least from an earthly perspective, all the power. It says that he was afraid, though. 
He gets to this place. He's been planning and praying. He stands before the king. He's upset in his heart. The king says, what's wrong with you? It says, and he says, I was very much afraid. The answer lies in the fact that Nehemiah was the cupbearer. The cupbearer was somebody in circles around this time who would basically be the last line of defense against assassination. So what this person would do is a trusted friend of the king would taste everything that was brought to the king. In the event of that, became, and actually became something of a confidant of the king as well, but always, always a servant. And so coming before the king with a look of fear, a look of anger, a look of anything could very much be a sign that there was an assassination plot being attempted. And so he knew this. He knew he couldn't come before the king with this face, yet he did. And the king noticed. Nehemiah's behavior and his face could have spelled disaster for him. In fact, what's interesting is that in the Hebrew here, it says, this is nothing more than sadness of heart. That word sadness could be translated as evilness or evil. So it's very likely that the king could have thought that Nehemiah was up to no good. Verse 3, And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This, to this point, gives us one important lesson, our first of three this morning. Powerful people might get the first word, but God gets the last one. Nehemiah recognizes that God is the one who is ultimately in power in superintending the choices of mankind. We make much of free will in our lives, in our society, in our worldview, the way that we consider and we say, well, that person has entire freedom to choose anything they want. It often impacts the way that we navigate the world, the way we seek favors from others, the way we ask things from others. But God is not God unless he is all-powerful. Moreover, the Bible is clear that God superintends not only our circumstances, opening doors, closing doors, opportunities, but he also superintends the decisions and the choices of human beings. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. When we are asking something from people who hold power over us, when, from people who have what seems to be the keys to our future, we must recognize that it is God who holds the keys to that decision. It is God who superintends the choices, the wills, and the events in our lives. When I was in prison, I was reading a book by a man named Manny Mill, maybe some of you know him, called Radical Redemption. And in that book, he took advantage of something called the Colson Scholarship here at one of the, at Wheaton College. And uh, I thought, well, the only requirement for it, like really, number one, is that you had to be in prison for a year. I was like, <laughs> I qualify. So I had made every plan to go to Wheaton College when I got out. And so I did. I mean, I did. As soon as I got out, I did everything I needed to do, get my ducks in a row, 
make my application. Oh, I crafted it. It was a thing of beauty. All of the essays were so well punctuated. The grammar was correct. The thoughts were coherent and cohesive. There was no way I was not going to get in. I asked appropriate people for recommendation letters, which they gladly gave. I submitted it to Wheaton, and I said, when do I start? And then I got a call. It says, Adam, we appreciate your, uh, your submission and your request for admission, but it's denied. What do you mean it's denied? Was there something, a clerical error? You must check your files again. There's some... They said, you haven't been out of prison for a year. I said, well, I never saw that. And I swear to this day, I never saw that. But I look now, it's there. It's there, okay? But I didn't know. I got off the phone and I said, I don't want to go to stupid Wheaton anyway. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that school. People would talk about Wheaton. I, pfft, I would walk away. I love Wheaton, by the way. I'm not... But at that time, I was so salty because I thought Wheaton was the worst school that ever existed because they did not let little old me in. And it took some time. The Lord had to reveal to me what was really going on. The way he did it was through a verse like this, Nehemiah. I recognize today, and I'm encouraging you to recognize today, that the decisions of those who hold power over our lives are not, in the end, controlled by them that God gets the final say. Now, this translates into any number of areas in our lives, whether it's applying to a school, whether or not it's approaching a spouse with a big business idea or a desire to do something totally different in terms of career or location. Who's elected president? We put a lot of effort and a lot of energy into the person who's president saying, this should not be never considering that ultimately it might be God's choice and that it is God who superintends the decisions of men. We give way too much power over people, especially people in power. Why? We tend to, as part of our sinful heart, allow people to hold the keys and be sources of idolatry. In other words, they hold something that we need in order to be existentially okay. So for instance, we don't want to step out on a new path or, or offer up a new idea or suggest a new way to someone for fear that they're going to think of us in a different way. So we remain quiet and don't say anything. Or money, like my boss held the keys to my paycheck, or significance. Or maybe they held the keys, what seems to be, to our very lives. The folk, the folk theologian, that's what we will call this person, the folk theologian, the revered theologian, Janis Joplin said, of all the music I've listened to, this is the only line. This is the line for me. I'll tell you. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom is another word for nothing left to lose. What does that mean? That means in Christ. For us, for believers, that means because we are in Christ and we have been freed from all of those things that demand our attention. All of those things that promise to give us meaning and significance and okayness and identity are wrapped up in him. 
are now found in our Lord. So we are severed from the ties that seek to control us. We now can go any place, say anything, make any action, trust any request that God has made of us because we no longer need to be attached or seek our identity in things apart from him. And because Christ is good and Christ promises to walk with us and love us and nurture us and ultimately if lavish his grace upon us here and ultimately forever in the next life, we understand how the decisions of men, powerful men here, could be met with responses such as willful choice of a Christian to die for the name of the Lord. One of my favorite, if not the most profound books I've ever read is called Fox's Book of Martyrs. You should read it one day. To hear the stories of faithful men and women who chose death instead of disobedience or dishonor to the Lord is astounding. Why? Why is it so amazing when we read it? Because they found the secret of detaching from the things of this world that give their identity and demand that we pay attention for Christ. But we're often afraid to trust him. And we look to the people around us. We look to those around us who seem to have power. We forget that they, like us, are mere mortals. In the common vernacular, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like we do. I'm actually a two-leg guy, in case you were wondering. But Psalm 56, 10, and 11 says, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The answer from the scripture is a resounding nothing. Nothing. Nehemiah stands before the king and doesn't make his request until he says a prayer. What is it? What's wrong with you? He shoots a prayer up because he knew that God was the one with the keys. This is not formal. Sometimes prayers like this are not even in words. It's just like a turn to the heart. It's almost like a, see me, Lord. It's like, here I am, see me. Something's about to happen. It can simply be a movement of the heart towards God that considers God's presence and invites him to look upon you in your situation. These in times past have been called arrow prayers because they're shot quickly to the throne of grace. Now these prayers are important because they demonstrate that we are living in the face of God. God is looking upon us. We're inviting God into our every day. But ultimately, they're not the bread and butter of a life of dependent prayerfulness upon God. Mervyn Brenneman, biblical scholar, says quick prayers are possible and valid if one is sufficiently prayed beforehand. Look at Nehemiah. Four months. Four months he prayed. So when he got to this point, he was able to shoot the right arrow. He knew what it was that he needed to ask of God. Paul encourages us in the New Testament to pray without ceasing, that our whole lives should be a demonstration of prayerful dependence 
We're certainly not on our knees at every moment, but we're on the knees in our heart. We're living before God. You see, God creates the opening that Nehemiah knew that he would need to strike in and use when he was ready to ask. He prayed for it. God made it possible. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy." Nehemiah makes his request. He asks to go. Now, this is not a small thing. It's not like there's a highway and we're driving 80 miles an hour from one place. This is a long endeavor. This is a big ask compared to what we would typically think. This is years. He's asking the king, send me and let me go for years. Again, I'm probably, Nehemiah is probably his trusted confidant. It's interesting here that Nehemiah mentions that the queen is sitting beside him. I searched Book after book for why is this in here? You can see in the ESV, it's put in parentheses. It almost seems like a a secondary thought, like they're just putting it in. But I think there's a couple of things, and people had all sorts of opinions. No one could land on anything, but there's a couple of things that are pretty interesting, I think. One is this person, this queen, the word for queen in Hebrew here is not the same word for queen elsewhere where we're talking about like Queen Esther, or we're talking about like Queen Vashti, where we're talking, or, or Queen Vashti. It's a different word. What it probably means is, is King Artaxerxes' favorite lady. Okay, the culture during this time in this empire was one of harems. So there was one king, one official queen, but then a whole group of ladies. This person next to Artaxerxes is probably his favorite one, probably the one on whom he dotes over the most, okay? So that's one thing. Secondly, this was also probably taking place during a feast. And during this time, it was common for the king to give a request, to grant a request to someone to show his sort of largesse, to show someone, to show the kingdom that he was a gracious and a good king who was willing to do amazing things for his people. So the queen being there is a likely witness. I think what it is, is that Nehemiah picked his opportunity. I think he knew that he's bringing wine to the king He knew that his favorite lady's next to him, and he's going to ask the big ask. So pick your opportunity wisely. Because there's really terrible opportunities to ask favors from people. God opens the door. God makes the opportunity, but our eyes need to be open. We need to be watching to know when it is that we are to strike. We're to be looking for when God has opened the door for the big ask. Now, his first request, let me go for a year that I might rebuild the city was big. But Nehemiah was not done. He asks for even more. Did I miss a point? I did. Where to go? Second point. Because God ultimately controls the situation, we should ask with audacity. 
If God is the one who is in control of all of these decisions, and we recognize that when we ask somebody for something big, it's God who gives the answer. We should not be afraid to ask the God who has promised to give us everything for everything we need. Nehemiah asked the king first for protection. He asked for letters of safe passage that I may go from here to there with a decree of permission saying it's okay to rebuild this wall. In the book of Ezra, the book sort of attached to the beginning end of Nehemiah, it discusses how the previous king or how King Artaxerxes had given a decree that all buildings should stop of the wall. So if Nehemiah shows up and starts rebuilding the wall, it could be construed, and as we're going to see more and more, as if there is a revolt going on against the king, that there is a rebellion brewing. So Nehemiah knows. He asks for protection, a letter demonstrating that he was there with the blessing of the king. Even though people have attempted something before and have failed, because we look at this, we see the temple walls had started to be built, the city walls had started to be rebuilt, but they failed. We can trust God to protect us in the face of opposition. This includes dealing with the ruins of sin in our own heart. What does this mean? This means like if in the end, if in the past, we worked on something, either in our lives, in our situation, in our hearts, some habitual sin, and we had failed in the past, God's calling you to do it again, go do it again. Don't say, well, we failed, I failed, this is as good as it's going to get. I guess I just have to deal with it. Fight. Keep going. If God's telling you to go, go. He'll protect you. Don't give up. So Nehemiah asks for protection. Not only that, Nehemiah asks for resources. He says, king, give me the letter. I know I'm going to go into opposition and they're going to try to stop me. Give me a letter. Give me what I need. We'll learn that he sends a whole group of warriors with them as well to protect them. He says, but more than protection, I also need resources. So he asked for a letter to Asaph so that he would get resources of timber in order to build the walls. All of it was the king's. And finally, he asked for personal needs, a house. He says, send me for a year, give me the resources I need, give me a letter of protection, and then give me wood so I can build my house. So I am taken care of while I am there doing your will. A common barrier to stepping out in faith to accomplish something for God is often our personal needs. How am I going to be provided for? Finances? How am I going to be taken care of? What's going to happen? God knows our needs. He knows your needs. And he uses the generosity of others to provide for them. Several years ago, there was a mission trip that was going to um, Slovakia to go back and see to help out an English camp. One of our missionaries, Michelle, who serves there. And there was a young lady who wanted to go. She was a brand new Christian. She was not sure if she was going to be able to go. In fact, I suggested it to her. I said, you should go on this mission trip. This is pretty cool. She's like, yeah, okay, I'll go to Europe. Absolutely. And so where do I sign? I said, well, you have to pay for it. She said, wait, this is like, I have to pay to go help people? Yep. You have to pay. She goes, well, I don't have $2,000 or $2,500 or whatever. I said, no, but God does. And God's going to pay for that need. God's going to provide for that need. She said, there's no way I'm going to... My family doesn't agree with what I'm doing. They think I've joined some wacky cult. They, now they want to send me over to Europe to some programming cult camp or something. And like, they're not going to give me anything to go. And I have no one. There's no one. I said, trust God. 
group of people went. I think there was about 10 people who went. She was the first person to raise all of her money and the first person to raise a super an abundance to be able to pay for the needs of somebody else. And she could not believe it. I said, why is this so surprising to you? I said, the scripture says that God owns everything. You think he doesn't own 2,500 bucks to get you to Slovakia if that's his will to get you there? I said, God will provide for you in getting you to the places you need to go. That's a lesson for us. I dragged my feet coming out of plumbing because I was convinced I would not be provided for. And God had to show me, frankly, through miracles in the hard way, that he is capable of providing. God has placed something on each one of your hearts. There's no doubt. The scripture says that we were created for something more and rarely are we actually walking in it. Rarely. We'll get glimpses here and there. We'll get into these moments where I was made for this. But I would proffer to you that there are things that God has put in your heart that you say, I should do something. But we hold back. Sometimes it's relatively little. Talking to someone, picking up a new ministry in the church, volunteering somewhere. Sometimes it's everything selling everything I own to move around the world to go help people I have no idea about, but God's calling me to do it. It's a dangerous truth. That because God provides and God promises to provide, when we ask with audacity, he covenants by his own character to meet our needs. And not only that, he goes over and above. It's the way God works his grace. We can ask Ephesians 3, 20, 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is just not using flowery language to praise the God, our King, and the Christ who saved us. He's delivering a theological truth that will transform Form our lives. It will change the way we serve and live and think and love when we recognize that God has everything and he loves to give it to us. If you're asking God to accomplish something in your heart, in your life, in the world around you, through you, ask big, and he will deliver. Step out in faith, and you will watch him meet your need. Why can I say this so confidently? Because God says it about himself again and again in his word, and has shown it to be true in our lives, even when we fail to recognize it. We simply must take the time to see it. And Nehemiah says, and God granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Nehemiah asked the king for a big favor over and above what he thought the king might give. He asked with audacity, and the king answered. But it was really the king who answered. When finding favor with others, 
Give credit where credit is due. In the face of Nehemiah's audacious requests, he gives Nehemiah everything he asked for. And as we'll see, more than what he asked for. Nehemiah knows to give credit where credit is due. First, he gives credit to the king himself. He asked the king for these big things. The king still made the decision, though the Lord superintends that. The decision was generous and gracious. And so Nehemiah gives credit to even King Artaxerxes that the king granted his requests. We should thank those. We should thank those who give us good things. We should thank those who come through and provide and are generous and are gracious to us. I had the opportunity to thank my boss in the plumbing company. It was, I had already been fully done. And it was about two or three years later, maybe. And he, and he calls me up. He says, hey, you're invited to our Christmas party. I said, you know, I don't work for you anymore, right? He's like, yeah. I show up to the Christmas party. Free food. We're having fun. Playing pool. He hands out bonus checks. I got a bonus check. It was at that opportunity that I made it clear once again that I was grateful for his generosity, that I was grateful for his grace. But you can be sure when I walked out of that bar, yes, I was at a bar. When I walked out of that bar, I said, Lord, thank you. Because it was God who wrote that check. It was God who made that happen. Not only do we give permission to the, or give thanks to the one who gave permission, but ultimately we give thanks to the one who wrought it, God. Though Artaxerxes was the one who made the decision in time, God made the decision in eternity. Scripture says that every good gift comes from God. How, how often are we praising and thanking God for the gifts that he's given us? First of all, to him, Lord, thank you for everything, but also before others. I'm so grateful to God for the blessing that he's given me today. I feel bad. Sometimes I think this is probably a sociological thing that happens with every generation. But one generation looks at the next generation and says, oh, they're a bunch of entitled people. They think that the world owes them everything. I think that probably the same held true the previous generation and the previous generation and the previous generation back all the way to Adam and Eve, okay? It's easy to look and see it happening before us in the generation that's coming up. It's harder to look at our own hearts. How often do we live with a self-entitlement in the way that we live as Christians before the Lord? How often are we recognizing that the gift that I've received this day is actually a gift of grace and generosity from God? Have I given thanks? James Ford, pastor on uh, Moody, one of my favorite guys, 630. I recommend. He didn't pay me to plug him, but that's, you know, 630 during the week. He has a granddaughter. He tells a story. He says that uh, his granddaughter spent the night one time. They woke up early the next day, and she had a bowl of cereal. She pours a cereal 
She says, Grandpa, can we pray? Yeah, baby, let's pray. So they pray. She eats the bowl of cereal. They're talking and this and that. She says, Grandpa, can I have another bowl? Absolutely, you can have another bowl. He pours the bowl, pours the milk. She says, okay, let's pray. He said, baby, we already prayed for breakfast. She said, I, we prayed for that bowl. <laughs> we didn't pray for this bowl. Out of the mouths of babes. How are we giving credit where credit is due to the God who has given us everything? Everything. Instead, we take credit. We say, look what I have done. We pull the Tom Hanks in, uh, uh, what's that? Wilson? Castaway. Favorite scene in the whole movie. He finally gets fire. I made fire. I guess he had to see it. He did it better than me. But we do this. We claim credit. We say, look what I have done with my hands. We sit in our homes and look around and look at the kingdom I've built. We look at the kids. Look what great kids they are. Or look what I've done. Or look, we look at our careers. Look, at, look what I've constructed in the name I've made. I have the best LinkedIn account I've ever seen. I have 26 letters after my name. I did this. Something in the sinful heart of man that seeks to take credit for something that only God could do. There's a poster in our room, in our living room, of the World's Fair. And I'm not exactly who this, sure who the statue is. I think it's progress or something like that. But right across her front, like her breastplate right here, in these little words are the words, I will. And the, you never notice them. They're just so little. But the first time I saw them, they're right there next to my chair, my chair. So I'm watching TV and I hear, I will, boring a hole in my head. And I'm thinking about, what is it in our hearts that seeks to do for ourselves only that which God can do in us. To take credit for accruing and getting and earning things that God is the one who's worked through us. And then beyond that, we don't even think twice about not thanking the God who gave it to us. You see, the good hand of God is upon us every day. Nehemiah says it. The king gave me what I wanted because the good hand of God was upon me. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that no matter what is happening in your life right now, the good hand of God is upon you right now. In your struggle, in your sins, in your troubles, in your circumstances, because of Christ, the good hand of God is on you right now. Do you feel it? Do you know it? God lavishes us with blessings every day because Christ settled the debt that we owed God that prevented that the overflow of God's blessing, the sin that was thrust between us and the Father that prohibited him from giving us everything he wanted to give us was removed because of Christ. And now we stand in relationship of lavished grace lavished love. God loves to give to us what we need, what we want. Believe it or not, God wants you to be happy. 
We take that phrase and we say, God does not want me to be happy. Your theology is faulty. God desires your supreme happiness. What we do is we seek things that we think will make us happy apart from him. And then say, well, God doesn't really want me happy. God wants you happy. He wants you happy in his son. He wants you happy with the best, not just okay. He wants you happy with how he's created you, not seeking attachment and fulfillment in places that are only going to hurt you. God loves to lavish you with things. He loves to see you happy. You're his children. But our lack of gratitude can be breathtaking. We minimize what God has done and maximize what we have, don't we? In Christ and because of Christ, we, we can take the words, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Because of Christ, the words, we shall inherit the earth, apply to us. Because of Christ, we live and move and have our being in a state of utter blessedness, even in the face of the struggle, sin, trials, and suffering that we find ourselves in while we're still here in this world. So let us give credit where credit is due. Let us give praise to the one who has given us every good thing, the one who made it all possible. Conclusion, powerful people, might get the first word, but God gets the last. Because God is ultimately in control of the situation, we should ask with audacity. And when finding favor with others, give credit where credit is due. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been, we know your word. It says that we are created for you and for good works that you've prepared beforehand. And oftentimes, Lord, it seems that we do not walk in those works for fear that we will lose something that we hold too dear, more dear than you. Often we let people stand in the way of us stepping out in faith and doing, thinking, saying, achieving the things that you are calling us to do. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to see those areas in our life, those areas in our heart that we just don't even take the time to pay attention to. Help us, Lord, to hear what is holding us back. When we hear your voice saying, go, step out, big ask, ask with audacity. Lord, when we hear those things and we don't respond, will you show us why? We pray, Father, that not only will you show us why, but give us the grace to look to Christ the one who has settled all those fears, the one who is the answer to all those fears, the one who has given us everything that we need, all we need to do is ask. And Lord, would you give us grace? Would you give us the grace to step out in faith, give credit to you, the only one, the only person who has all power and all control We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing to do anything you call us to do because Christ was willing to do anything you called him to do. And it's in his worthy name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. 
Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.